Shakespeare's biography, notably brief as it is, does contain a few instances where he interacted with the law. He's on record having failed to pay his taxes a couple times. There's the contract of his purchasing new house. There's his famous will. And then there's the one time when he was called to testify about a dispute over a dowry. For having such a limited exposure to the Elizabethan legal system, Shakespeare nonetheless riddled his plays with numerous legal phrases, with lawyers and public officials, and with courtroom scenes that stand out amongst his huge body of work. Shakespeare's portrayal of the law was so deft, in fact, that there's a cottage industry of academics and skeptics who have posited that Shakespeare was actually a lawyer, or at least had some basic legal training. Skeptics of these skeptics will point out errors in Shakespeare's legalese, or point out that he used a phrase incorrectly or out of any proper context. Like many details of Shakespeare's life, it's another black hole people will fill with pet theories to explain the supposed gap between what we know about Shakespeare and what's contained in his plays. Personally, while anything may have happened during the so-called lost years, the idea of the Stratford man giving up on a very stable and profitable legal occupation for the nightly success and failure of the playhouse just doesn't seem to jive with the straightforward, frugal, utterly unadventurous man identified in those very same legal documents. For the majority of Shakespeare's career, he did one thing, write plays, and he did it very well. Shakespeare was, first and foremost, a dramatist. And with that lens in place, Shakespeare's use of the law and legal system starts to make a lot of sense. For him, the law, in quotation marks, was not one singular entity. The law in his plays lives in his characters. It exists to prod and move them in ways that reveal some element of the human condition, whether that's hypocrisy, growth, or vengeance. The law is another mirror of identity and another platonic form out there somewhere against which his characters and stories grow and morph and conflict with one another. The law is one tool in Shakespeare's toolbox, a part of reality for both his audience and for the author himself that can be drawn upon to elicit an emotion or set a stage. Today, we're setting the stage for an epic showdown in the court of Hale Hughes as we discuss Shakespeare, the law, and justice on this episode of the Bix to Shakespeare. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. So I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is The Big Spot. And we're here, as Aiden very eloquently discussed, to talk about the law and Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, Hales Hughes being the name that we have, the, the portmanteau, yes. you know, the Brangelina, if you will. of I would. The, the Brangelinification <laughs> of our, <laughs> our last names. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, so to talk about the law and Shakespeare and Shakespeare's various, um, 
dealings with the law and yeah. in his plays and in his his personal life and i'm glad you brought up in your opening essay in the uh, idea that shakespeare may have been a lawyer because i had forgotten that that was a theory for yeah. a long time yeah um but in doing my research for this uh first of all if you type in shakespeare in the law you will get tons and tons <laughs> and tons of returns in your google searches there have been books there are essays articles peer-reviewed journals uh, people who cite Shakespeare in their legal briefs. It's yeah. like, it's it's the cottage industry of people who think that Shakespeare was a lawyer is is dwarfed massively by <laughs> yeah. the amount of people, the cottage industry, the, the, the townhouse complex yeah. industry of people who are writing about Shakespeare and the law. Um, we are not experts in this field whatsoever. Not even a little bit. But it is fun to, to look at... Um, all the different ways that the law permeates Shakespeare's Mm -hmm. writings. Um, Something like 20 of his plays feature either a courtroom scene or some kind of legal dealings. There are the the court uh, documents that he is on record as being a part of, whether it was he was being called as a witness Mm -hmm. or writing his will. Um, There's just, there's just so much there. He words that he coined or that he was the first one to use anyway, mm-hmm. are now part of our jurisprudence, <laughs> ju- jurisprudential <laughs> language system. Sure, yeah. Let's um, make up phrases while we're at it. Why just not? Like you know, just like yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> so, I mean, he is, it's, it's a fruitful avenue of research. We're obviously Absolutely. not going to pick all of the fruits from that tree. No. But we do have some interesting things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess to start off with, Aiden, um, there's, there's kind of two basic legal frameworks that the law or that Shakespeare operates under, right? Well, it, 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 in the Elizabethan structure, there, there are two kind of, well, really three separate uh, legal systems in play. There's the common law one, which, you know, as Canadians, we've inherited. It's it's case law. It's, you know, this this history of this led to this decision by this judge. Yeah, Therefore, it's all based on precedent and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and all these elements. And that's um, that's something that we've, we have to this day. It, yeah. It's the system that we're we're used to, and uh, there are in laws. England as well. UK, yeah. they have the same thing, and that's where we got system. it from, right? Exactly. exactly yeah. yeah, same. Uh, the United States inherited it as well, um, and and that's kind of the legal system that we're used to, and and that Shakespeare kind of uh, depicts most frequently sure. um, as being, you know, uh, laws passed down from a political you know, high person on high, um, and then it's enforced. And then if there's disputes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's, there's, there's that wiggle room in the middle where the law kind of sits. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the big one that he deals with most often, but I didn't even know this. There was a whole other, uh, system. There's the, so that was the court of Queens bench and your King's bench or whatever. That's kind of the main court avenue for, you know, resolving disputes and and stuff. Yeah. Um, but there was called something called the court of the chancellery, um, Uh which is when the, the, the Lord's Chancellor, uh, and uh, I think it was Sir Thomas More, maybe, or uh, Francis Bacon. It was a famous name, anyways, who was the first one uh, of the of the chancellors who was a lawyer. Okay. And he, they basically had something called equity law. Okay. And this was a way to, if common law was going to be too strict and it, the outcome of common law because of a case in 1228 was that you had to get hanged because you stole half a sheep's leg from your guy down the street that that's not fair right and then that was something that they recognized so there was a secondary kind of court system called equity uh law 
and you would appeal to uh, the chancellor uh, and uh, it would go through this separate court system called the equity system. Uh, And in this, you could get a a more fair and sometimes quicker uh, resolution to your dispute. Interesting. Um, And I don't know. I don't know all the details at all. I just read this very quickly because it was in uh, one of the articles I was uh, reading, talked about uh, searching for instances of uh, equity law in Shakespeare's plays hmm. and there wasn't much because right. he really does rely a lot when, on when when was the this law. equity law system or equity legal system kind of established it was it was it started in about the 1500s so okay, it was so it really was, recent yeah it was it was started under uh the Yorkists actually okay uh, were, were the initial kind of big contributors to it um because they really beefed up the chancellor right role um and it persisted until 1875 actually really yeah I've was, never heard of this I know, no, never, amazing. Well, and in the 1840s, uh, early Victorian era, uh, they did pass the first kind of laws that wound up merging them all into right. the common law system that we that the UK has and yeah. that Canada inherited through the Constitution Act and all that stuff. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a vestigal part of the system, but yeah. it would have been very real for Shakespeare. And chances are uh, he would have been involved. Like uh, I, one of the interesting things I read was that Elizabethan England was super litigious. Everybody oh, yes. was suing everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that whole idea of, you know, you'll get your day in court was taken very seriously yeah. uh, in the time. So I actually read something similar that um, a huge number of Elizabethan plays feature courtroom scenes because um, so many of the audience members would have been involved in various litigious dealings back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a new emerging... Um, mercantile class that has property for the first time and they have the money to be able to afford to pay for a lawyer to be able to try their cases Mm -hmm. um so the the entertainment they're watching reflected that back to them um so this is one of the arguments against the idea that shakespeare would have been a lawyer because everybody would have had a working knowledge of so much of the law that it's not impossible to understand or to imagine that shakespeare himself would have being a, a writer and probably a reader as well would have had a slightly bigger you know understanding well, and, of that and he was a middle class individual Absolutely. he would have been one of those yes. people probably suing because someone you know burned down his livestock or I don't know or stole even. his half leg of lamb yeah. and needed to hang the person apparently yeah, exactly. in your you know, legal system yeah this is Aiden. what happens you know this is why I don't <laughs> run the courts um, but then there's there's also so between uh, equity and common law there's also the ecclesiastical law right, so that yeah. was the church's dealings and somewhere in between all three was the the power center of what happened if you did something wrong yeah and obviously the king was kind of or the queen was the the Arbiter highest level yeah. yeah um and most often he or she would delegate down to the so are you talking about morality at this point well that's kind of the interesting point because i think for shakespeare um that's the king and morality are very finely connected because yep. of the divine uh, chain of being and all these things like the right they, of kings to ex- rule exactly yeah. this was all connected for Shakespeare at least yes. um, in practice it's hard to tell um, I mean I again you'd have to really be a, a, a historical legal scholar to like really uh, be able to explain the, mm-hmm. the intricacies of how these systems all interplayed um, but yeah that that the sense I got was that common law kind of overtook everything equity was there for some stuff and the ecclesiastical stuff was for mostly people in the church and people who committed uh, 
religious crimes, such as not going to church, I guess, or I don't know well, what exactly I, those would have been. What, well, I was the one who put it in this morality thing in our notes mm-hmm. here because um, uh, the the thing that interests me most is looking at we we just did Merchant of Venice last mm-hmm. time in our last podcast, and uh, and that final court scene um, does. It's the most famous of all the court scenes. We are going to talk about it a little bit more in this podcast. But um, it deals with the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, and that that balance between the two. But there's an overarching morality to what is happening there. And that was something that was really um, a focus for me when I took this course that I I, uh, took back in my undergraduate days. Yes. Lindsay, would you please describe the course for... Those of us who as missed much the last as, Yes, as much as I can remember it. Um, it was a, a kind of a new thing. I, I mean, this is something that a lot of universities and colleges around the world are doing is is marrying in various ways um, Shakespeare and the law. So this was the University of Alberta's uh, first attempt, as far as I know, to merge these two fields together. Um, so in this interdisciplinary realm, there were six... English students, we all had to apply with an essay explaining why we thought we would be great to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, take this course. And six law students, they were not, you know, advanced law students. They were first or second yeah, year, probably like, something. You know, yeah. not my, the guy I was with was not much older than me. Yeah. Um, and we were all paired up. We had to write a few essays. We read a few plays. We read a few legal briefs. Like there was, you know, back and forth. This was back when I thought I was going to be a lawyer, yeah. if you can believe that. <laughs> Um, you do so like to argue. So. I do, I do, but I don't have the brain for it. So, um, uh, so yes, and then and in the end, we all got paired up and we had to present a case. And the, the case we were arguing, I think in the previous, in a previous um, episode, I incorrectly remembered what the yeah, case you, you was. you said what it was, and I was like, that didn't sound quite right. Yeah. Because I, I remember attending, you yes. had to argue the we case. We did, in, in the moot court at yeah. the University of Alberta Law Buildings. But, um uh the the arguments that we were making were based on um whether or not same sex marriage should be legalized yes. and uh and this was something that um we were very explicitly told by our professor that uh the modern morality that we live in this was around the time that same sex marriage was being legalized in Canada i don't remember if it had been yet uh 2005 2006 something like that um but we couldn't rely on that. We had to rely on the Shakespearean morality. And I, do, I did go very hard and very deep into the morality of the plays. I wrote a whole essay about virtue and vice and how the seven deadly sins played a role in all of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. I did very well on that essay. I did not do very well in the court because the professor ended up using modern day morality against <laughs> yes, us. Yes. In the, and I was, remember. I was very we were, outraged. We were well. all very outraged. But, um, but either way... Uh, the the central point that that always interested me about the Merchant of Venice was the fact that you had this legal system, this earthbound, human-based legal system that it didn't really matter what was in there because in the end there was that overarching, very Christian dominant culture morality yes. that informed the ultimate um, verdict, I guess, against yeah. Shylock, yeah. which. Uh, interestingly enough last time we talked about how Shylock probably would have a good case for an appeal I read an essay where a guy actually laid out how he would appeal (laughs) Shylock's uh, conviction I guess or the verdict against him so um, but that's what always interests me and that's why I put it down there because it seems like 
Shakespeare is not presenting his plays as if they are in a courtroom. The courtroom is a set and he's using um, the legalese and the the ins and outs of the law, which he would have known and learned somewhat with, yeah, in, his, some point, yeah. in his life. Um, but he's also using the Christian morality mm-hmm. to tell bigger stories. It's yes. not it's not yes. like he's he's doing a John Grisham thriller or a Law and Order episode where it's <laughs> it's true to the law. There's yeah. something else going on there, and it seems to be that this morality is overarching it. So I think there's you're right. There's this common law, this equity law, which I'd never heard of, and then there's this Christian morality that mm-hmm. overarches everything. everything else because morality yeah. is something else that. Yes. And if you look at it as like God's law, or you look at it as like the biblical law, when people break a biblical law in Shakespeare, yeah. um, bad things happen. Yeah. Right? Or a natural law might be a yeah. more legal, yes. appropriate way to describe Absolutely. it. So, I mean, yeah, and that's, it's a good point because, um, and it ties up with kind of my general understanding of, mm. of I read a, a very, a couple of very, very good um, articles about uh, the law in Shakespeare and there are multiple opinions on how he uses it and whether it's accurate or not and all this stuff. Um, but really, at the end of the day, the only reading that can really support it is that, again, he does use it um, to get at that morality. Thing. Right. It, it is, you know, it's not whether or not Shylock has a case in the actual court of Venice. Right. It's whether or not Shylock is a good person for seeking yes, his bond. Death. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the answer to Shakespeare was no. Yeah. Um, but it also is what makes it so interesting when it raises those other questions about uh, Portia. Is Portia a good person because she forces this this man to convert? Mm-hmm. She doesn't uphold the spirit of the bond. No. Nope. You know, she upholds the letter of it, um, which is what Shylock asked for. Again, yeah. So Merchant yeah. of Venice is, is just a great example. But yeah. that is kind of applied throughout his use of the law. Right. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about a couple of those examples uh, shortly. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Horse and cow. Oh, no, no. Thou stole for a witch. I do, do, thou sudden witched lord. Thou hast no more brain than I have in my nose. So, yeah, to come back to Shakespeare's direct involvement with the law, mm-hmm. um, as Aidan mentioned, there were um, a couple of times that, that Sha- we know that Shakespeare was called to uh, testify or had to sign legal documents. Um, obviously, the purchase of his his home, new place in Stratford upon Avon, which was the second largest home, yeah. um, required some legal finagling there um the the most interesting one um that we both ended up reading the same article in our research and and we were talking to each other about it like i think we read the same article because we were both really excited about it um it was this one that that was about a a a dowry it was an argument about a dowry that shakespeare happened to witness the marriage or witness the betrothal or something and had to testify several years later something like 12 years later that uh that what had happened was what had happened and um and and what was so fascinating about this we'll we'll definitely link this in our in our notes um is that there's an actual record of what Shakespeare said on the stand or yeah. or under oath, yeah. and the language, um, the language that he uses is is like classic boilerplate lawyerese. Yeah. yeah, it's like his lawyers or somebody yeah. sat down with him and said, "Okay, that you're going to say this. This is how you're going to say it." Yeah. Um, like like for example, 
The said defendant's wife did solicit and entreat the deponent to move and persuade the said complainant to to affect the said marriage. And accordingly, the deponent did move and persuade the complainant thereunto. And it's like, it totally sounds like it could hold up in court. I'd be like, yep, he's guilty or whatever. I don't know what you're saying. But it's like, it it is so cool to to be able to have, this is the only time that, that Shakespeare's actual speech was recorded. Yeah. This is the the word of the man himself, which is kind of cool. But it's also kind of disappointing because it is just yeah. literally a lawyer phrase that yeah. he was he memorized and he said yeah. used his acting talents. I'm sure he sold it very well on the stand. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, pounded I, on the desk. <laughs> yeah. Order here. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> uh, you know, right? like there's there's that. So I mean. It's, it's, yeah, it's funny that that is what's retained yeah. is a legal record. And yeah. that's uh, another reason. Sorry, I've just got to jump in here, but there's no way Shakespeare was a lawyer. No. Uh, just because there's no, there would have been, an, there that was the one kind of record that was kept yeah, in detail. Yeah, exactly. Was all these, these cases and yeah. everybody needed a paper trail to, to show, no, no, you still owe me the yeah. six pounds and from whatever. And with so many cases and so many depositions and so many instances of, uh, you know, legal contracts being signed and things being brought up before the courts. If Shakespeare had been a practicing lawyer, yes, we would have. We had would know something. that. Yeah, um, we would so, I mean, absolutely know. Unless it wasn't Shakespeare who wrote the plays, of course, which right. is another question we're going to come back to yeah. many, many months from now. Yes, when absolutely. our blood pressure has reduced. <laughs> so yeah, that was that's really it. I mean, there's there's not too many instances of no. his connection uh, with the law. He managed to keep a fairly low profile. I did mention the uh, the few instances where he didn't pay his taxes. Yeah, um, you know, and he got caught. In fact, and the instance where with the poaching, yes, which is also a yes. legal issue. Yes, you know, exactly. back up in in Stratford. In Stratford you know, yeah. when he was a young man, and yeah. and I guess the marriage contract between him and Anne Hathaway. Well, that would have been ecclesiastical. It would have been, probably, but it's but yes, still it's, it's still a record. Ca- yeah. Counts as a record of mm-hmm. of his dealings with um, uh, of a, a legal yeah, framework sort of, of framework some, of yeah. some sort. Yeah, so, yeah, that's true. Um, but you're right; there isn't a lot, and uh, and it's uh, somewhat disappointing. But but we still have this vast body of work where so many of the plays um, feature some kind of uh, trial scene. Mm-hmm. Like uh, this this uh, quote I'm going to read. It's it's a bit of a long quote, but it's um, from a paper. Uh, written by Gavin McKenzie, who's the treasurer of the Law Society of Upper Canada and a partner in the Toronto office of Heenan Blakey, LLP, um, okay. as of 2006, anyway. So he may not <laughs> Probably be. Probably not anymore, but okay. um, But this was a paper that was presented at the Chief Justice of Ontario's Advisory Committee on Professionalism, Sixth Colloquium at the University of Toronto's Law School, March 10th, 2006, around it's the same already time. already very long. It <laughs> is. This is how lawyers talk, though. There unto and heretofore. Um, vis-a-vis absolutely so he says two-thirds more than 20 of shakespeare's plays have trial scenes the one we discussed from the merchant of venice in his paper is among the most memorable in all of literature the themes explored include the extent to which the law should be used to enforce morals such as in measure for measure how law can benefit society by channeling the passion for revenge hamlet the impartiality of the judiciary in henry the Fourth parts one and two, the role of the law in protecting one's reputation against slander, Othello, much ado about nothing, and the winter's tale, the need to avoid rigid interpretation of formal rules and contracts that can have unjust results unless tempered by equity, measure for measure, and the Merchant of Venice again, and the principle that no one, not even the king, is above the law, Richard II, King Lear, etc. Um, there, so those are kind of the overarching 
I guess, broader themes that mm-hmm. Shakespeare uh, employs the law for his own purposes. And those are the themes that he is uh, doing that in the service of. Um, there are tons of quotes here that, uh, like I said, we'll link this also in our in our notes, but um, specific quotes, times when, like, legal intricacies, dialogue that would have a special meaning for lawyers, which is really important because so many... Um, performances were done for lawyers in like law court settings Mm. right where where uh yeah all of these aspiring lawyers or barristers and solicitors would hang out and watch the plays and this was a this was a great big the inns of court would were a a huge hot hot spot for um performance Mm -hmm. um so of course shakespeare is going to pepper this with stuff that's going to interest his audience yeah um so it's 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 definitely omnipresent throughout i mean two-thirds of his plays contain a trial scene like that's yeah i i can kind of understand why people would think that he was a lawyer just because or at least very interested in the law Mm -hmm. a law and order fan aren't we all aren't we all yes uh yeah and it it definitely it's it's a good point i mean there's there's just these constant constant uh references some of them um i have to say a little uh esoteric to a modern reader especially mm. um they're words that either don't have a legal connotation or meaning anymore okay um or a phrase that we now just use and it doesn't uh it's been divorced from perhaps its legal uh entity it's uh, its original meaning right um i find that really interesting too that um i was reading there was a whole article i was reading about uh, i was going through someone's book that they had written uh explaining why shakespeare was not a lawyer uh, and then this article was read, writing in response to that to say, oh, no, these weren't mistakes that Shakespeare made. They just uh, either you've read the legal meaning wrong or uh, you've uh, misunderstood his use of the phrase. Oh, okay. uh, and this was like this is like third level yeah, argumentation yeah, yeah. here. Yeah, like yeah. this is getting really, really into the weeds. But I was I was amazed at reading just some of the examples. I mean, like this has no legal meaning to me whatsoever. Um, and the people who were thinking that Shakespeare was a lawyer were saying like, oh, no, this proves that he was heavily invested in forestry regulation around deer right. hunting at the time because Henry the seventh or Henry the eighth had instituted this yes. law yeah. and this was the phrase that was used right. and the play doesn't seem to have much about that so it seems like it's it's kind of grasping for straws at Interesting. Some but the fact again that people can jump into the text mm-hmm. and say oh no that's obviously a reference to this um, is I think owing more than anything just to uh, how impressively uh, vast Shakespeare's uh, vocabulary was well, if and, anything else and like honestly just to, to completely pepper in different Mm -hmm. phrases and things that just feel very effortless like um hamlet to horatio while examining the skulls in the graveyard uh why may not that be the skull of a lawyer where be his quidditch now his quillets his cases his tenures and his tricks yeah right i mean it's just it's something that hamlet absolutely would say yeah it fits very well shakespeare has a has a knack for capturing the voice of the characters that he's writing um as we've mentioned before but to be able to just pull out a word like like quidditch and quillets which nobody uses those words that means subtleties and evasions to be subtle or to be evasive okay uh and that's something that would not have entered my mind. I'm a writer. I know words. 
You don't know those. I don't know those words. <laughs> and that's that's just the thing, right? I mean, now, again, we're talking about a time when people are um, heavily invested in, in the law and there's a lot of that going on. So his audience probably would have gotten it. Certainly, if he was performing this at the ends of court, they would have understood this. Mm-hmm. And by the 1600s, early 1600s, they definitely were. So um, it's just that kind of uh, that intricacy of, of language where you can just drop in a, a word or a phrase and it doesn't feel pretentious. It doesn't feel forced. It fits very well in what um, the context of the scene, the context of the characters. And it also adds this other layer of meaning that um, has managed to throw people off for 400 years who, mm. n- who now are convinced that Shakespeare had to have been a lawyer because quidditz and quillets, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, just... No, it's it's a good point. Methinks thou art a general offense, and every man should beat thee. I think thou was created for men to breathe themselves upon thee. So uh, the first kind of general theme that uh, we want to tackle is one that Lindsay mentioned in her breakdown. It's about how uh, the judiciary has to kind of be independent and impartial uh, and has to apply to everyone, even those in positions of power. Right. Um, and th- this is most... Uh, powerfully i guess or yeah i'd say it's it's quite powerful is is uh in henry the fourth mm. uh parts one and two uh especially well at, at the end of part two uh henry the fourth has died right hal has taken over he's going to be uh henry the fifth this is right before he stabs falstaff in the back and, yeah. and leaves him leaves him a broken man um and there's an interaction between him and uh, the chief justice uh, is, the, I think, the actual name of the character. And the chief justice is scared out of his mind because when Hal was a younger lad mm-hmm. causing problems, uh, the chief justice, uh, you know, basically took him to took him to court, literally, yeah. uh, and punished him for yeah. uh, his his you know ne'er do well. Yeah, you know ways. his his yeah his usual youthful exuberance, yeah. let's say. Um, and this guy's sweating because he's yeah. like, now the guy's the king. He come back and kill me. And he gives a a, a great speech. Um, it's in Act Five, Scene Two, uh, line sixty five to about one eighteen. Um, it's about um, ha- having to. Uh, Face the law um, when you are not the source of the law. Um, And he he talks about how if I I did this to you when it was your father's face on the coins and he was the the source of power and truth Mm -hmm. and justice in this country. Um, Now, what would would you think if I uh, failed to mete out justice under your name? Would you think I'm a good chief justice? And... How, to his credit, again, this is part of his transformation into yes. Henry V, is like, that's a very good point. Yeah. I like you. You're yeah. good. And he, he kind of like, he just gives him a pass and he he moves on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really kind of a, a an incredible, uh, it's an important, again, it, it, it serves the play really well because yes. you are seeing this transformation. Um, and I get, you know, the Chief Justice has a bunch of run-ins with Falstaff earlier in the yeah. play. There's, there's kind of this uh, dichotomy being set up between... The lawless Mary Wells yeah. of Falstaff and Hal, and then the figures of order and yes. uh, propriety that that and good governance and good governance exactly <laughs> yes the uh, the the Canadian trio really uh, so these are these are set up as as contrasts and it's a telling moment for the character mm-hmm. of Hal he transfers from one side to the other as he becomes king took the words right out of my mouth because that's what that's what makes it 
important that he's the one that experiences this because mm-hmm. he straddles both he's the only character who does straddle both sides of that line yes and and does very well in both he's such a popular character he's such a fun character to read in in Henry the fourth parts one and two but then when you get to Henry the fifth he is such a strong king it's very easy to forget that he was that youthful exuberant Falstaff's right-hand man or yeah. however you want to look at it yeah. <laughs> um and so for him to have this transformative moment and for it to be centered around um the impartiality of his chief justice yeah it's it's a very telling moment because um Shakespeare has dealt with in previous episodes of uh, uh our podcast yeah. <laughs> um in the histories of uh the illegitimacy of of kings mm-hmm. and how kings inherit their right to rule and inherit their right to um, to pronounce law mm-hmm. in the land. Um, but if they're not good kings, their kingship does is not guaranteed. And he's yes. very clear in in Richard the um, Second to a, a certain extent in King John, yeah. um, Henry the Sixth, well, yeah. any of the plays where there's a usurpation yeah. or an attempted usurpation that that occurs, there's that question of as we've talked about what makes a good king, yeah. and Henry the Fourth, uh, when Hal has that. Um, that moment where he confronts what it's going to take for him to become a good king. Mm -hmm. It's not about you've been given this from on high. It's not about your father was a king, so you have to be a king. It's, It's like the law says this. And how do you respond to that? Yeah. And and it's almost a it's very it's a very important moment for the character, but it's also very telling about how um, I think how Shakespeare is approaching um, not only kingly justice and and the law as it pertains mm-hmm. to kings and how um, the law of the land is meted out, yeah. but his overarching morality ab- about all of all of human interaction in the Elizabethan world and how it should occur. A good king should recognize that the law needs to be impartial. It has to be applied the same to you when you were a kid and as it would be to your own kid if he were or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think that's... Um Another article I was reading, just to riff off that, Lindsay, yeah. uh, there was there was a lot of talk about in the time of um, what makes a good king. Mm-hmm. And there were kind of two competing, generally as a role, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of nuance, obviously, but there were kind of two competing uh, roles for it. One was Machiavelli. Of course. Uh, you know, the prince, you know, a, a, a good king is one who looks after his own interests and therefore the kingdom's interests. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a good person. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, Erasmus, who was, you know, kind of going on the other side saying that a good king is good because he is a good person. Mm-hmm. He is the, he's the figurehead through which goodness flows. And yeah. if he's a good person and a good king, uh, then the harmony will fall yeah. throughout the kingdom. And that's generally, I think the, the way Shakespeare kind yeah. of views it. Um, but he, he does, he allows, uh, Henry V to have a more mercenary side and in, in Henry V, mm-hmm. you know, he goes to war and he, he's asking all those really difficult questions about like, is it my responsibility? If all the men, if my men die, 
die? Yes. Do they go to heaven or hell based on the justness of my claim in this war? Which um, is the huge, huge moment in Henry V. It's yes. like the central moment. Exactly. Right? When right? he becomes one of his men. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And, and and that's um, that's the really challenging part for uh, the character and the play. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all led up to through Henry IV, the first two parts, because it's, it's the continuation of... Uh, his development into an Erasmus type king mm. of someone who's both good, but also um, good in a little bit more Machiavellian sense. You know, he mm-hmm. does woo uh, Catherine or Elizabeth, I forget what her, the French princess's yeah. name, uh, but you know, he woos her, you know, he does it well and he seems genuine uh, depending on how it's played, of course, yeah. but you know, he's wooing her for political purposes. He's mm-hmm. there to secure the crown of uh, France. So, you know, he, he has this other side that is a little more... Mercenary. Mercenary, again, yeah. A little more Machiavellian. Yeah. Um, but, but generally... I, but but I, think it's, I think for Shakespeare, it was... You can have Machiavelli if you're a good Erasmian king. Yeah. If you are a good king in your home country... Right. Go nuts abroad. You know, go and rape and pillage in, in France. Who cares? They're dirty Frenchmen. <laughs> you know, like that was, that was <laughs> yeah, probably okay. the thinking at the time, right? Yeah. And I think it, it, again, kind of supports... Um, it's very status quo in the sense of like... Elizabeth was very domestically focused. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was starting... Uh, some not starting colonies, but you know, exploration and trade was was big. Um, it's different than fighting wars, though. Exactly, it was right? different than fighting wars, and unless you the, count, you discount the Spanish well, Armada. Well, but. okay, sure, but also, but also, the biggest, more uh, important problem for her was the war inside yeah. with Catholics and Protestants, yeah. right? Yeah. So she she did kill Catholics. You know, she killed her uh, her own her own aunt. Uh, no, her cousin. Her cousin, yes. Yeah. Of course, uh, you know Mary Queen of Scots is is was killed for essentially being a Catholic mm-hmm. figurehead, right? Mm-hmm. So she she does have these elements where she has to be Machiavellian. So mm-hmm. I don't think Shakespeare or any of the playwrights at the time could have come out and said, if a king ever murders anybody, yeah, no. they're bad right. because obviously that's not going to fly. But at the same time, you can't say, well, yeah, you can go do whatever you want yeah. and you can be a good king. So, so there's there's a nice nuance to exactly. to what he's saying, and and um, I think rooting it in in the human created law mm-hmm. is a nice way of doing that because it, it's not really going to run afoul of anyone. Yes. Right. Because the law, the law is kind of an ideal. Mm-hmm. It's upheld as, as the thing that even Shylock, who is not a member of the, the dominant culture can still point to that law as something that he can grasp. He can hold on to. Yeah. It'll, it'll support him in the end. It doesn't, but, but even he believes that it is. Yes. So, I mean, that's something that, um, a playwright can can maybe question the monarchy yeah. or question the right of a king to do a certain thing without actually running afoul of the monarch and committing yes, treason at the time. Right. Yes. Well, so. and, I, and and that's a good point because the other ones where this comes up is Richard II. Yeah. Definitely. I yeah. mean, it's it's so concerned about you know when is it just to overthrow a king? Yeah. Right. You know and. It, the law is obviously not on your side, yeah. but then as soon as you are the king, the law is on your side, and yeah. it's, it 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 plays with that sense of like what's right uh, under the law, yeah. based on who's in charge at the time, right? Yeah. Um, and even like, uh, you know, Richard essentially has to give up his right to send his inheritance onto any future children because right. he abdicates the throne. Yeah. Um, but when the throne is the source of all power, how can you abdicate that? You know, yeah. it's, 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 and when you're anointed and when you're yes. like, so there's the clash there again between that kind of 
religious law or the the mm-hmm. holy law yeah. and the the law of the people which you know is what allows a king to be overthrown in the first yeah. place yeah which and are which are all powerful conversations that are happening at the time the reformation is just you know yeah. 100 200 years beyond yeah. when it started so i yeah. mean these are all very pressing questions that people mm. are wondering about like what law do we uphold yeah and using the histories like yes shakespeare is chronicling the history of his people but but there's also some room for some very interesting dramatic and literary thematic discussion yeah um of the issues of the day mm-hmm. which is what we've talked about in yeah. our previous episodes the way that shakespeare can cast um an old argument an old series of events yeah. in in light of modern events mm-hmm. richard ii is a play that's performed the night before elizabeth is almost yes, overthrown by right. shakespeare's own troops yeah. so i mean this is this is something that um has uh very it's a it's a an ongoing conversation it's an yes. ongoing struggle there's I a guess. timeliness to it yeah yeah, yeah. The other one I wanted to mention that fits in very closely is uh, is King Lear. Yeah. And uh, that one, again, the, the law is that uh, Lear has given up the crown. Uh, he's going to step away. Um, and then in that vacuum, he's, mm-hmm. he's divided his lands and uh, Goneril and Regan have, have taken over and... Um, there's 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 a vacuum left behind in which the law says that he has no power. Yeah. Um, and then he struggles with that reality. Yes. For the rest of the play. Um, and it, it's 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 very much kind of Richard II, in, except for the fact that he voluntarily yeah. gave up yeah. um, the, the throne. Uh, just adds an extra d- dynamic there. But mm-hmm. the thing that's really interesting, and I don't think I noted I don't think I've ever seen this, but in uh the quarto edition of uh, Lear, mm-hmm. there is a mock trial okay. set up for uh, Goneril and Regan. Yeah, uh, I never pronounced the names twice the same way twice, but um, <laughs> there, there's, and it's, it's the the court is like a, a mockery of a court. It's Lear's gone crazy. The fools yeah. there, uh, Edgar, I think, is there blind. Um, I, I don't remember exactly all the things because, I, again, I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Oh, yeah, no. I do remember when we read Lear in university, Lindsay, this is just a memory trip now. Yeah. Uh, the version that's in uh, Bevington yeah. was the combination of both Cordo and Folio. Oh, okay. They just jammed everything together. See, I didn't read the Bevington version. I had yes, my own versions that I read, so yeah. I've never read this. This yes. is interesting. So that one probably had the scene. Okay. I don't remember it very well, obviously. Um. But it, it is another courtroom drama where they, yeah. they try these two women for, uh, I think they're in absentia. I don't even think they're in the yeah. scene, but they, they do this kind of mock trial. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good quote I wanted to uh, just read quickly from this one article that, again, we'll link to. It says, Lear, stripped of all the pa- trappings and powers of his kingship as a consequence of his misjudgment, has not only learned to judge his three daughters rightly, but he has gained much self-knowledge. With his new self-knowledge so dearly bought at the price of his madness, he tries to use the royal prerogative of dispensing justice once more. All he can accomplish is a mocking of the forms of normal human justice. Comic in the ranting of Edgar, but desperately pathetic in the impotence of knowledge gained too late to yeah. be translated into power. Yeah. And that that's that's a great combination or conflux of factors that lead yeah. to this this justice, the scene of justice yeah. um, that is completely in, unjust 
because it's been robbed of all reality. Well, and it's and it's too late for him. Yeah, like he's, yeah, it doesn't matter. He, anymore. It doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. he's he's given up the ghost, really. Yeah, and he can't. He's no longer able to function on that level anymore. So I love that the the knowledge gained too late. Yeah, to be translated into power, and I think that is another thing when when we talk about Shakespeare's approach to kings is that. The more knowledgeable and wise a king is, obviously, the the greater they would be. Yeah. Um, so you have Henry V coming to grips with his power and mm-hmm. being a good king and reigning in good stead for X number of years. You have a king like Richard who doesn't really have all the wisdom at his yeah. hand. Um, you have Henry VI who may have had goodness, yes, moral goodness, yes. but doesn't have the wherewithal to really put it to use so yeah. other people step in for him and yeah. you have Lear who has all the power reigns for a long time you think he's doing the right thing but his wisdom is lacking and he what's tragic about it is that he realizes too late how yeah. much he's missed out yeah um yeah that's brilliant villain i have done thy mother um we kind of talked a little bit about the uh the idea that kings um, not being legitimate or um, for being forced to be held to the same standards as the people that they reign yeah. with Richard II, uh, King Lear. Um, some of the comedies get into uh, some legal issues as well. I don't know if you want to talk about... Um, well, I guess we let's talk about slander, uh, the law, yeah, and okay. how it... Because uh, there, are, there are a number of plays, Othello yeah. being the, the most... Um, the biggest yeah, one, the biggest sure, one, yeah. but much ado about nothing. You have uh, accusations of impropriety yeah. that are, um, you know, defended very vociferously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very me too play, much ado about <laughs> nothing, which I love. Yes. Um, and then the Winter's Tale, which again yeah. has, you know, the whole play hinges on, and we we. Obviously, we're not going to read this till much later, but we've talked about it before that it's such a weird dynamic because it it has this tragedy of of the Hermione's death, but then her rebirth at the end, yeah. um, which vindicates her innocence really mm-hmm. and and her character. Um, so, in 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 each of those cases, the law is being used or abused to effectively shut down another person's argument yeah and cause uh in in these cases um character assassination or literal assassination in the case of desdemona yeah yeah it's true <laughs> yeah yeah it's even in much uh midsummer night's dream as well there's yeah. the whole like well she's my property i'm gonna marry her yeah, to whoever yeah. i want you know yeah. this is and then the fact that she's you know stepping outside is mm-hmm. is another um thing but yeah your, your point about slanders is is really good because especially in much ado uh it's it's so central to uh, the conflict and the fact that there's no, I don't think, again, it's been a while since I've yeah. seen it, but I don't think there's a there's a trial scene necessarily in that. There's just accusations hurled yeah. and, and what's his name is like, oh, I'll never marry her now. Yeah. She's been sleeping around or whatever. Yeah. Um, like that's, that. it's interesting when he reverts to a trial and an official kind of court and there's, there's someone with the power of justice in their mm-hmm. hand. Um, versus when it just figures itself out, like in Midsummer Night's yeah. Dream, where they just wind up happy together at yeah. the end, and there's well, the no comedies need. do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it tends to wind up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, but in yeah, Othello again, he doesn't doesn't co- go down that route. Othello takes it into his own hands of to course. get vengeance, and yeah. and that's a commentary on all sorts of other things. Like Othello is yeah. a very dense play that way yeah. as well. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting when he goes, when he doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, and what 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 crimes kind of warrant it. None of the none of the slanderous stuff. Maybe he maybe that's a subtle hint that he's like people say shit about me all the time. I'm right. Shakespeare, okay? Like I I'm not I'm not going to take people to court just cuz they he would don't not like, like my plays. modern day <laughs> the litigious, you know, American legal system. Well, where actually everybody's Well, in America it's actually slander. really hard to get it is. sued for libel yeah. and slander because yeah. you have to prove that they know knowingly didn't yeah. knew that it, they were lying. Yeah. That's really hard to do. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, it's true and or I I think he'd be more comfortable in the call-out culture. He, he'd right. be like, you know what? If I screw up, call me out for it in public. I'm yeah. not going to sue you for it. Yeah. Um, I'll just deal with it that way. Yeah. Um, he'd like Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Oh, um, we should have Shakespeare. <laughs> I would love to see his Twitter account. That would be great. <laughs> um, I think your point is well made that um, there are no trial scenes when it comes to things like slander. And, and I think we still see the evidence of of a legal type system in place when you have mm. verbal arguments that are being uh, made yeah. back and forth. So much ado, obviously, we have tons of verbal sparring. Lots of back and forth. Um, and and in, in a lot of those plays, it's it's even if it's not strictly speaking a legal argument being made, you can still argue your way around another person in order to get what you want. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the article that I read my quote from before breaks down um three different types of verbal arguments that shakespeare probably would have learned as a as a young schoolboy um because they would have learned how to debate Mm -hmm. and then they would have based their their debates uh or their debating um tactics yeah yeah. on cicero and Mm -hmm. and the the ancients and what they would do and there were three big overarching types of arguments that would have been made there was the juridical the conjectural and the negotiative mm-hmm. and um i'm not going to get too much into the difference because i don't really understand it <laughs> but it's just interesting that that you can pinpoint moments like juridical um juridical arguments are where all the parties have agreed that something has taken place so there's an agreement that Shylock and Antonio have entered into this agreement. Yes. Nobody is disputing that the bond exists. Yeah. Um, it's just a, an argument about whether or not the this is moral or right mm-hmm. or just, yeah. right? So that's a juridical argument. And there are other instances of that um, where in the plays where there's no argument about the, the, the statement of facts would be agreed upon by yes. all parties. Yes. And it's just... I feel like I was in the right. No, I feel like I was in the right. Mm-hmm. And so that that's an argument. That's something that Shakespeare would have, I think, if we were to examine all of the plays where there is um, no trial scene, but there are legal elements or yeah. very intense arguments, you would probably find this kind of juridical argumentativeness throughout. Yeah, and, and a good example, getting back to kingship, is the Wars of the Roses. Sure. You know, there's two houses that both yeah. feel like they have a claim mm-hmm. based on the usurpation of Richard II yeah. onward that are, are duking it out now because yeah. they both feel like they have it. And you see that in the the picking a, a, a rose, you mm-hmm. know, scene at the mm-hmm. Henry VI Part One. Yep. It's it's there. In this legal matter, what do you take, uh, what do you believe, and what, what do you support? So yeah. I, yeah, it's a great example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the conjectural argument is where um, the you're, you're trying to defend an action that has clearly been, been been performed in violation of the law or in violation mm. of of rightness. Mm-hmm. Um, Othello 
uh, yes. can't defend the murder of Desdemona, and in no. the end, he is like that. That's his downfall, right? Yeah. It, it's the end of his story. Um, uh, Lucrece and Tarquin, Lucrece, who you know is raped by Tarquin. Um, this this event is indefensible. It's it's she's trying to defend herself. You could also make the argument for um, in Titus Andronicus. The yeah. why can't I remember the daughter's name? But yes. she she is stripped of her ability to yeah. argue. Yeah. But you can't defend like the act was so abhorrent it's so now even though there are no court scenes no, there's nothing is being brought to trial here um you're still arguing about uh the the wrongness of mm-hmm. uh, of an action yeah. or the wrongness of a yeah. uh, um, an event so then finally the 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 last one is the negotiative argument which is where um it's about the correct interpretation of a legal document so there's really not a lot of that in shakespeare Mm. but you do get it in henry v um where the archbishop is um arguing about whether or not the law of fairmont grants the kings of england any title to the crown of france yeah okay um reading that directly from the article here Mm. so uh but it, again, like if there's, you might be able to look at um, Merchant of Venice being uh, yeah. a similar situ- yeah. situation where yeah. here's this piece of paper, this bond, and Portia picks it apart in a negotiative way to try yeah. and uh, piece together an argument that For will her. benefit yes. her yes. side. Yeah. Um, so those are the three kind of big um, types of arguments that are made. So even if we're talking about a play that doesn't, strictly speaking feature a trial scene you might still encounter moments where shakespeare's uh cicero background and debate would have come to the fore and he would have used some kind of juridical uh argumentative strategy strategy you know well i mean i mean shakespearean rhetoric yeah are are, you know hand in hand you think of julius caesar and you know oh absolutely or whatever produces a good man yeah yeah oh my god that's like Like, such a brilliant moment of of rhetoric yeah yeah so So, i mean like there's all sorts of this littered throughout um yeah applying it with a legal lens in particular is Mm -hmm. is interesting but i think it's just when you're a playwright you're gonna have characters come into conflict and they're it's yeah. mostly going to be verbal so yeah. you're going to have well you know, no exactly i mean these, that's these back and forths that's yeah. that's the basis of all literature there mm-hmm. has to be a conflict in the story mm-hmm. and i mean we're not talking about animated you know or, or silent film or something so it's going to be verbal so yeah <laughs> yes. you're absolutely right it's yeah. so yeah using the tools that you have to mm-hmm. affect the the meaning or yeah the progress the of end the results play. that yeah. you want yeah yeah there it is why, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. And there's uh, one play that I have never read. Never, I don't think I've ever seen. Maybe no, I have seen. I don't think so. I don't think we've seen it. Uh, measure for Measure. Yeah. Uh, so I've now read the description of it a couple times because uh, it's come up in uh, quite a few instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it features a very uh, large emphasis on the law and what is right or wrong. So uh, in summary, from what I understand, uh, the Duke of Vienna steps down from his role for a little while, hands things off to a guy, uh, I think his name is Alonzo maybe, um, who institutes a law that's retroactive that says if you committed uh, sex outside of marriage, mm-hmm. um, you're going to be killed. It's wow. it's a federal offense now yeah. to, to do this. Um, and uh, so he applies it to the two main characters. Um, well, he applies it to the main character 
uh, who it was about to marry the woman that he'd slept with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Elizabethans especially would have understood this one, one of the little points I, I read in the in some of the articles I was reading about it. Uh, Elizabethans would have been horrified because this kind of stuff happened, right? Like yeah, people, sex outside of marriage. Yeah, sex outside yeah, yeah. of marriage would happen yeah. as long as everyone got married. And, yeah. you know, Shakespeare was obviously, yep. he knew all about <laughs> it. Uh, so... You know, they would have been a little horrified that the that someone with power would come in and try and enforce this very yeah. strict moral code. Yeah. Even though that's what Puritans, yes. I, this is kind of like an anti-Puritan thing. Now, the measure for measure gets interesting because the, the guy who comes in and does this actually uh, winds up trying to sleep with uh, this angelic Isabel yes. figure, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so... He's very obviously in the moral wrong. He's yes. just a complete hypo- hypocrite. Um, and he's challenged and he faces it. And then he winds up sleeping with someone else because mm-hmm. there's a swappity do at nighttime. Anyways, uh, it, it's it's a play all about, you know, if, if what the law says is right, is it really? Just yeah. because the law says it. Yeah. Because um, there's all this injustice being meted out by this, this man who's trying to impose order um, and ostensibly do the good Christian thing. Sure. Christians don't have sex before marriage, um, even though they obviously do. And <laughs> and he uh, and it's it's very much getting into that question of like, when is this a uh, a positive thing to enforce the law versus when is the law stupid? Yeah, um, you know, and <laughs> big old stupid head. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And and it, it kind of ties back to, to Merchant of Venice because Absolutely, yeah. it's very it's it's again like do you follow the letter of the law or the spirit or, of the, or the law? spirit of the law? Because yeah. if again if this uh if they're gonna get married anyways, what does it matter if yeah. they slept together a couple weeks earlier or something yeah. like that, right? Or have been for ten years. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Matter. Yeah. Um but uh and and of course the play ends with it's it's not a named play, it's not a tragedy. No. Everybody doesn't die. They uh everybody gets married. You mean measure doesn't die in that play? <laughs> Both of them, <laughs> measure and measure, both side. Uh, but yeah, they, they, you know, it's marriages, and the Duke winds up marrying the Virgin, yeah. who was going to go off to a nunnery, which yeah. is kind of a weird flex. But uh, <laughs> so, like, it, it, it again, it's it's a play very focused on uh, morality versus law versus justice versus, yeah. um, and, and the the one interesting thing that's that uh, is a good contrast for Merchant of Venice is I'm sure it's Alonzo. I'm, I'm sure it was him. That I was think his name. you're right. Um, Angelo. Angelo. Sorry. Not Alonzo. Angelo. Uh, it's uh, Angelo does basically the same thing as Shylock. Like he tries to enforce the letter of the yes. law. Um, and it backfires. It backfires. And he is punished in the sense that he has to marry someone he didn't want to marry. Right. Um, but he's not killed. You yeah. know, it's not like, and that, and that's kind of an important distinction is, uh, between uh, the the punishment meted out to Shylock versus mm. the one done to uh, Alonzo because Angelo Angelo I really cannot remember I could I knew you were gonna do you it you knew it was so gonna get wrong I, I and you jumped you. in yep. thank you You're I welcome. really 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 appreciate that <laughs> um, it's kind of uh, similar in the sense that the villain of the story. Mm gets off rather light. Right. And I'm putting this in quotation marks. Yeah. Um, but again, it's it's revealing the hypocrisy of, you know, the Jew getting off light means he loses everything or yeah. loses most of his livelihood. He can't practice his trade anymore. And or his religion. Or his religion. And this guy gets to marry a woman. Yeah. You know, oh, the shame. You know, How like... How horrible. Yeah. It's... it's it's uh, They're tied together that way, but yes. um, they, they don't... The ending is not satisfactory uh, the way it is in Measure for Measure, though, as in Merchant, for Ven- Merchant of Venice. I, I really butchered that sentence. But I'm saying you Merchant of Venice, yes. unfair, Measure for Measure, 
feels more how you would expect uh, a Shakespearean comedy. Comedy, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, but but you you're absolutely right. Like I think there there's definitely a, a link there between um, the the common thread is that you've got anytime you you are trying to um, force one interpretation of something mm-hmm. especially the law if you're trying to force that one interpretation um you're going to run up against problems yeah and i mean i think in other people's hands you might be able to uh extrapolate that to shakespeare couldn't have been a catholic because how would he have agreed that how could he write plays that that completely manhandle the people who who want divine like one interpretation <laughs> yeah. of anything yeah. to be the way to do it yeah. i'm not going to go that <laughs> far but it does seem kind of suggestive of of a kind of um uh shakespearean Pluralism. law yeah yeah in yeah. in in the way that he approached his morality says that there is there's room there's wiggle room yeah there's Definitely. there's room to be um, lenient and there's room to be uh, kind of look in the gray zone for mm. for the answer instead of it being so black and white. Yeah. Even if like in Merchant of Venice we don't agree necessarily with the outcome or we feel it's unfair. Um, that is the moral that's handed down is like yeah. have some flexibility, guys. Well, like, yeah, yeah, the quality of mercy that that mm-hmm. is the biggest speech in that yes. play, and that's something that. Um, only when Shylock turns away from, he is given multiple opportunities to be merciful and mm-hmm. he, and he chooses not to because his vengeance gets the better of him. And Hamlet is very much the same way. There are lots of places where Hamlet could have been a little bit more temperate in his emotions, but his quest for revenge yes. is ultimately, um, I, it's why I love the, the, um, the Kenneth Branagh version. Is it the Kenneth Branagh version? Of? Hamlet with the black uh, and white yes, tiled yes. floors because it just sticks in my head that she, that Hamlet is very black and white in the way he approaches the world. Um, Shylock very black. Well, okay, See, you know what? We'll get into that when we get to Hamlet. But uh, uh, but the point yeah. the point is is that the people who do approach things black and in a black and white way are they're the ones who have trouble. They're the ones who have yeah. the biggest troubles because the world is not black and white. Yeah. And that's something that I think Shakespeare comes back to over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and it's probably one of the reasons why um the I I appreciate the common law aspect of our legal system because it it's not there is wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Judges have the ability to you know, very very, yeah. there are recommended sentences, but you can be lenient and you can be harsh and you yeah. can, uh, the, the punishment fits the crime, at least in the Canadian legal system. In a lot of places, it's well, way worse. And yeah, our legal yeah. system, people get off a lot lighter for some things. But, yeah. but I mean, that's where a common law is very much, um, it feels very like a, if Shakespeare is a product of his time, the English common law that we practice today is also a product of that time. And they're mm. both concerned with not black and white, but that messy gray area yeah. in between. Yeah. So, yeah. But then you've also got Dick the butcher saying, let's kill all the lawyers. So I yeah. mean, best line in Shakespeare, best line in Shakespeare entirely. 
If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So in today's ancient bickerings, um, not much to bicker about. I think we both came to some pretty good agreements about things. But but in general, the the question that I want to ask mm-hmm. that I, Aiden has already agreed to, so um, I not shouldn't really present asking, this as but, yeah. <laughs> a question, but um, is the law in Shakespeare a force of good or something else? And, and I'm going to let you go first, Aiden, because I still haven't formulated my argument, so... That's how we. That's how we roll in yeah, the big pod, yeah. just off the cuff, just top of our heads, well, seat of our pants. And in that spirit, I'm going to say that it is a, a source of good okay. in the plays. Um, I feel like, again, and you you kind of touched on it somewhere in our long conversation today. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is a. It is an intangible thing that you can grasp, if that makes any sense. Um, it is something that I think for his audience. Um, and for the characters in this play, Mm -hmm. the law is a real thing that has real power, especially in something like Merchant of Venice, Manager for Measure, um, the ones that are very, very concerned with it. But again, the fact that it's spread throughout, it is a source of real power and it really affected people's lives. Um, even like Twelfth Night or something like mm-hmm. that, where you know you get imprisoned for cross guarding your socks. And yeah, <laughs> or novel, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, and I think uh, I think the reason it it acts as a as a good sense is the fe- is that it's a, it's connected to the state at large. This is kind of like early days of what a nation state, you know, nationalism mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. getting started. There's this is the early days of what a country becomes um, in in our modern parlance, and. Um, I think Shakespeare identifies uh, the state as a good thing. Um, It can be dangerous and it can lead to, you know, all sorts of bad things. You think of Richard III had the power of the state at his control and it was terrible. Uh, Macbeth, uh, we've talked about recently, uh, it was very similar. You know, like there there are uh, sources of injustice within the law. But generally it's, it's there. The law is there to uphold justice. And I think that's uh, in line with Shakespeare's view of kingship. Kings are there to uphold justice and mm-hmm. do good for their people. And uh, it's there for the for the common people. Um, uh, you know, I think that lawyers to this day and the legal system can be made fun of. But if, you, if you've been wronged, that is your recourse. That's the way. I mean, there's no people going out with, you know, posses to get their vendetta done anymore because we have a legal system that allows you to channel this positively. Um, and I think he gets that across in a very strained way. I think this is, again, this is, this is early days for what a state is supposed to do for its people. There's no, you know, there's no Hobbes or Locke or any of these things that say, you know, talking about social contracts and people giving power to the, to the, to the government, uh, this is very much the government, but there is there is an implication that the government is there for you, um, and the law is the tool to by which they protect you. It can probably be really unfair in a lot of cases because they can pass a law saying uh, Aidens with the middle name Darnell will all be punished with ten lashings as of tomorrow, and that's a law that could get passed in England in 1599. Uh, it would suck as an Aiden Darnell. But it's it's still uh, I would I would take those lashings knowing yeah all those other Aiden Darnells are getting this too this is a fair thing that's being meted out across everyone and I think Shakespeare agrees. So you came up with all of that just just off the top of your head. Uh, yeah. 
God damn it. I'm sorry. No, I'm impressed. I'm <laughs> I'm very impressed right now because, you know, I here I was thinking I was going to trip you up by asking you to go first and instead I've just tripped yourself. Well, because I think I think maybe the the way I set up the question implies that the opposite of your argument is that yeah. the law is bad. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. Okay. Um That's fair. But I don't think that that the law is as easily clear cut necessarily. Mm. Um because I do think we see um certain legal loopholes being used for some and not for others. Um we have a law that is unevenly applied depending on who is the person yeah. being tried when you've got... And who's the judge. And who's the judge. Um, whether you're a king or not, I mean, I think some kings get off quite easily and some get treated very poorly and mm-hmm. some commoners get treated very poorly and some get off very easily by the same legal system. Now, I have to understand also that Shakespeare is... is um, writing about various countries, he's not writing about their legal systems. He's he's grafting his understanding of the English common law system or mm. the English equity law system or the English ecclesiastical law yeah. system onto Venice or mm. onto ancient Greece or whatever. Yeah. But but I do think that um, there's there's almost an element of chaos to the law and the way that the law exists in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, okay. Because it's not like... The thing that that my course that I took was set up to try and, and, and discover was if there was a canonical Shakespearean law that could be compiled hmm. as an English common law has been compiled... Um, in order to try cases, could you could you take the plays as your um, your central source texts mm-hmm. and say, based on what we see in these plays, can we make a legal system out of it? And the answer was no, yeah. at least in as far as we got. Now it was a one semester course, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I it think seems like a lifetime of work. But okay, it, well <laughs> it it did. Let me tell you, but. Um, it just it feels like there it's too disparate. So I don't know that yeah. that it's it's not evenly applied. It's not um, it's not even evenly understood. Yeah, across all the plays. So it's not chaotic lawful. Even it's chaotic neutral. Is what it's you're saying, isn't <laughs> yes, it is. It's just pure neutral chaos. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes, um, which does not say I'm not disagreeing with what Aiden is saying yeah that the the law does seem to be upheld as a force of good or at least as a force of um, uh, steadiness or stability yeah yeah right it's the thing that unites people together but a suspension bridge unites people together, <laughs> and it's wobbly as hell. Yeah. So I think that's maybe the kind of stability that the law represents. It's not quite, and and because it's early days, like you said, it's early days. We haven't codified uh, a lot of what is being um, talked about in these plays. Mm-hmm. As we have now, I, I think our legal system that has grown up out of the English common law system is much more stable, mm-hmm. right? But. In this day, in contemporaneous Shakespearean day, the law is is trying to be the thing. Yeah. And it gets undercut. It does get undercut here and yeah. there, depending on on 
not only depending on what is happening in the plays, but depending on what is the story that Shakespeare wants to tell, which is what makes it so difficult. It's a fascinating thing to discuss Shakespeare in the law, but it makes it really difficult to try and pin something something down using Shakespearean plays and say, this is, this is what it is. Yeah. Just because it is so disparate and... Uh, well, and it was telling stories. It wasn't trying that's to exactly set up case law. Yeah. That's exactly it. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. Well, Aiden, this was a fascinating conversation. Yes. We Neither one of us wanted to sit down and do this conversation tonight. No. We've had a long week. It's my birthday tomorrow. Yeah. So when you're hearing this, it will be after my birthday. Yes. But uh, both had a long day at work. Yeah. At home. Yeah. Um, so it was, but a it was, a, tough, it was, a, but I'm it was glad a great, we did it. it was yes. a good conversation. I'm yep. glad that we had this. Uh, what's up next for us? Uh, next we have Henry the fourth part one. Yes, that's uh, right. One of my favorite plays. I really loved it. And I'm coming off of the merchant of Venice, assuming we're even close in our chronological order. Yeah. I'm really interested to see how far he's come in terms of the histories. Cause Richard the second was kind of interesting. Uh, King John is this one off that just, it was, it was not as engaging. I was yeah. not as impressed. Um, I remember really loving Henry the Fourth Part One. I'm hoping it sticks up or even is better on second reading uh, when we come back to it now. So I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then after that, Lindsay, we have our acting in Shakespeare. Yes. Episode. Yes. Which we have already recorded. We have a, a gangbusters panel of yeah. actors and actors. Did you hear the way I said that? Yes, actors. actors. Um, of actors and performers who uh, joined us a couple of weeks ago to discuss their uh, insight into the world of, of performing Shakespeare, mm-hmm. which is going to be just, it's a fantastic conversation. We can't wait for you guys to hear it. Yeah. Um, so yes, any final words thoughts about Shakespeare and the law? Uh, it's, it's messy, man. It's a messy topic, but I'm, I'm glad we <laughs> talked about it. I yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Good. Do I have any final words? No, of course not. Why would I have final Why would words? You have final words. We're tired. It's been a long day. We'll see you next time, folks. Let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> first things first. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.